You're listening to Little Green Cheese, episode 19. Well, welcome back. I'm Gavin Weber, and this podcast is where you can learn about cheese making at home. Well, this week's episode is going to be about my cheese-making goals this year. And then we'll throw in some news and some listener questions. Should be quite interesting. The first goal that I have for this year is to perfect at least two mould-ripened cheeses this year. Other than uh, normal camembert and uh, Stilton, a blue cheese, I want to try something a little bit different. And this is stemmed from my conversation that I had with Ian Truer in the last episode. He makes a cheese called Little Squirrel, which is a a semi-lactic cheese that is mould-ripened. He also makes a rather large type of camembert called Camembundi, I think he nicknamed it. And that looked very interesting. That was a large camembert-style cheese that was mould ripened. The circumference of it was probably about 20 centimetres wide by the looks of it from the photograph. So a very interesting cheese. And uh, another thing, um, one of the reasons I want to try uh, and perfect at least two mould ripened cheeses this year is because even though my Stilton is a very nice blue cheese, the, the, the longer it ages, the obviously the more uh, sharper it becomes, the more blue it becomes, I suppose. Now, what my wife Kim has requested that I make a blue cheese that is a little bit less sharp, a little bit milder than what a Stilton is. And what I've been researching is Cambazola, which is a cross between Camembert and Gorgonzola. Uh, and I found a nice recipe over on uh, cheeseforum.org. So I'm going to try that out soon too. So there, that's my first goal. The second goal is to teach new cheese-making courses other than mozzarella and ricotta. Now, I did, last year I had scheduled uh, feta and that the students would have made, and they also would have had a masterclass in how to make 30-minute mozzarella. Now, that turned out to be not very popular at all. I don't quite know why. The price was a little bit higher than what the mozzarella was because the feta takes a lot longer to make. Now, what I'm thinking of doing is, this is my initial thoughts, is that uh, you put feta on the uh, on the list again, but team it up with a cheese like, for instance, halloumi, which, look, it takes two hours to press, and it does take a little time to make. But I think that that paired up with feta, uh, which only takes an hour, maybe two at the start with the renneting and the culture and then only 20 minutes stirring and then you press it for four hours. Now, pretty easy with the feta. I've already got cheese baskets, feta baskets for that for students. And with the halloumi, you don't need any um, You don't need any pressing. Uh, you don't need, well, the pressing is the two hours under a couple of cheese boards. But you don't need any moulds. You actually, you know, create the cheese there after it's uh, floated back to the surface of the a way that you're cooking in. So that's two potential. So I'm kind of tossing that up at the moment and trying to work through that. 
so I've got to come up with a lesson plan with timings and test it here at home, and then we'll see if I can go to the um, uh, start offering that courses to the public down at um, Melton South Community Centre, where I normally teach, and other places around town. Uh, the final goal that I want to look at is to make bigger cheeses. Now, we, the cheese recipes that I use here at home are mainly for 8 litres or 2 gallons of milk. Now, I want to, you know, you go to all that trouble making just using 8 litres of milk when you can spend exactly the same amount of time and double the recipe. Now, I have made some double batches before, and basically I just split the curd at the time of pressing. So put the curd into two separate one kilo moulds, press them, and I had two, two one kilo wheels of cheese. What I want to do is invest in some bigger cheese moulds, some larger ones, some that some will take up to, what I hope, about uh, four kilos of curd, and be able to press that. Um, I may have to make a a new press, um, so in the style of a Dutch press, which is quite easy because um, I've got the plans. People have sent plans through to me, and I'm quite a dab hand at woodwork, so that should be no issue. The other issue, really, though, is uh, I would need another pot. So I've got a 14-litre pot at the moment, which could make about a, a 1.75 kilogram cheese, just shy of two kilos, but I want a, a bigger pot than that. So I'm thinking of maybe 28, maybe 30 litre pot. And we can go from there. And hopefully that'll be enough. So they're the, they're the goals that I've set for myself for my cheese making hobby this year at home. So I'm going to try and work through, as I said, perfect at least two mould ripened cheeses this year. Teach at least one new cheese making course and uh, make bigger wheels of cheese. So well, I wouldn't say they're lofty goals, but they're certainly doable. And if I put my mind to it, I'm sure I can come up with some ways and means of doing that. And hopefully I'll be able to, especially the course, I'm really interested in teaching other cheeses than just mozzarella and ricotta. I know they're the basic, and that's where people, the basic ones where people need to learn. But, you know, feta and halloumi, a little bit more advanced, a bit, little bit more fun, and hopefully that'll go well. Anyway, so let's get on with the news. So the news I have today is from the Sydney Morning Herald. And the headline is, Chinese start to say cheese. And that's Chinese as in the race, the Chinese people. So I'll just read a bit out here. It's quite amusing, and uh, it was quite eye-opening when I read it myself. So it says, The sight and smell of a block of Parmesan cheese seemed pleasing enough to hand gin at first, but a nibble made him gag. The Chinese businessman's first experience is shared by many of his compatriots, consider cheese a strange, even alien dairy product. Cheese is new for us in China. Most people only know the word cheese but don't know what it is or how to use it, said Mr Han, general manager of Shanghai Roia Trading Company, a distributor of imported food. After acquiring a taste for various cheeses from around the world, from blue cheese to mozzarella, Mr Han is on a mission to cultivate the same appreciation in other Chinese people. We're organising seminars about cheese for adults and children, he said. There's much to learn. 
Growing disposable incomes and exposure to Western-style food through chains such as McDonald's and Pizza Hut's is driving China's demand for cheese. God help them. (laughs) China rose from Australia's sixth to second largest cheese export market in the past two years, with 7,400 tonnes of cheese, almost three times the amount of a decade ago, landing in China in 2012. Japan remains the biggest market, figures from Dairy Australia show. New South Wales is the second biggest exporter, export contributor after Victoria. Mr Hahn's company sold 100 tonnes of mostly French and Italian cheese in China last year, up from the 40 tonnes four years ago. He said it was helping fellow distributors secure markets for Australian cheeses in first-tier cities, including Beijing and Shanghai. Local consumers are becoming interested in foreign foods and foreign tastes, he said. When asked about the boom, people also believe food and drinks from developed countries are safer and healthier. Anyway, I'll leave it there. It goes on a little bit more. I'll put the link in the show notes. Very interesting. I didn't realise that China didn't know much about cheese. I suppose it goes to figure they don't have masses, ma- massive herds of dairy cows. Um, there, there wasn't a very big beef industry up until a few years ago so I suppose with beef comes cheese so yeah go figure so um, yeah very interesting so the dairy industry is growing dairy export from Australia anyway is growing into China so now it's time for listener questions and the first one comes from my favorite Frenchman at the moment uh, Jean-Michel so Over to you, Jean-Michel. Hello, Kevin. Uh, Jean-Michel from France. Uh, I have a couple of questions to ask you about uh, uh, pressed cheese designing. We tried to design uh, press this afternoon with two friends of mine. And uh, we wondered if it was better to use uh, uh, some less, some weight to put over the disc that presses the curds. Or uh, is it better, if it's better, to use a spring and a system to push the spring uh, to replace uh, the lead, the lead, or, or the, the, the last, any last you can use. Um, the problem with the spring system and the screw that push the, 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 the spring is that if the curves goes... Uh, the, le- the, the curve level goes down, the pressure will decrease. And we made a test uh, with a scale, and uh, we saw that uh, uh, pressing 5 kilo, uh, when the level uh, goes down by 1 centimeter, the pressure becomes uh, goes down to 1 kilo. Okay, so you lose uh, uh, most of the pressure uh, if the the the, the, the curve level goes down and it will go down because uh, it's uh, what we are looking for. <laughs> so um, do you have uh, an answer to that? And the second answer is that in every recipe uh, everybody speaks about uh, pressure in terms of weight but not in terms of weight per uh, surface. Okay, or pressure is... Uh, uh, a certain weight over a certain surface. I mean, if we, if if you may, you are making a small camembert and uh, you press ten kilos, the pressure will be uh, uh, 
uh, hard and if you apply the same weight over uh, uh, you know uh, a surface uh, as as big as a, a big brie or I don't know what a plate for example the pressure will be much less so uh, on every uh, recipe one can't see the the, the, the pressure uh, so what about this also how to solve this problem <coughs> if we want to make a the cheese that uh, the recipe uh, aims to do to, to make. So thank you for uh, uh, re uh, reply and uh, thank you for bye bye, Kevin. Uh, bye. Well, thanks for Jean Michel for that uh, for two questions there. So the first one uh, for people who may have found it difficult uh, to hear. The first one was, what's my thoughts when pressing a cheese? Um, is it best to use a spring or is it best to use uh, just raw weight. Now I have a 50 pound spring on my cheese presses because that's what they're designed, that's how they're designed. So you screw the screw at the top down, it uh, compresses a spring which is a 50 uh, pound spring or 22.5 kilos roughly and what that does it applies then the uh, built up pressure in the spring is applied then to the cheese. And rightly said by uh, Jean-Michel that the cheese, uh, as it compresses, the spring expands. So there's less pressure on the cheese itself. So that's not really ideal. However, for the home cheese maker, not too bad. So if you're pressing a cheese uh, that asks for, say, 50 pounds of pressure, then really, and, and it's over 24 hours, you know, within the first 12 hours, the spring is going to expand again. Just screw it up again. You're applying another... Uh, another 50 pounds of pressure. So you can get away with it as a home cheese maker. No big deal, really. However, uh, the best way is using weights on top of, directly onto the follower uh, at the right uh, the right amounts that the recipe uh, asks for. So uh, that that is the best method, applying weight directly to the follower. And if you stack your cheeses, then it's obviously to just the top. Um, so that's no big deal. Now, as far as uh, answering the question around weight versus surface pressure, I don't think it's too much of a concern for home cheese makers unless you're starting to expand and make really large cheeses. However, I probably won't be able to answer this question until I start making my own really large cheeses. And uh, so I'll have to defer that question until about ooh, two or three months uh, when I start getting some large ones under my belt. So sorry about that one, Jean-Michel, I can't really answer that one, but hopefully the first one, yeah, definitely you're 100% right. Weights are better than using a spring method, but for the home cheese maker, if you're only pressing at really low weights or heavy weights for a long time, you can just retighten the spring, no big deal. So the next question comes, it's an email, it's from Rick from Barry in Texas, Rick Tantalinger. I think that's how you pronounce it. Sorry if I've mucked that up, Rick. Uh, his question is, Hi, Gavin. I really like your website and blog. I saw on a YouTube video that a friend of yours, a friend made you a curd cutter. Does he have them for sale? If so, can you please send me his contact details so that I can order one from him? Uh, no, he doesn't sell them. He made those as a gift. Um, however, he was kind enough and this is David Dawson, who 
uh, appeared in one of the earlier episodes of the podcast, and he um, kindly supplied me with the instructions. And in the show notes, what I'll do, I'll put in the link to the instructions. So if you need to build one yourself or any other listener wants to build a curd cutter um, that has appeared in some of my latter videos, uh, then, yeah, you can you can do that yourself. So thanks very much, Rick, for your question. Uh, next question is from uh, Dean Adams, and I think he's somewhere in New South Wales in Australia. He says, Hi, Gavin, I just listened to your YouTube video on making Parmesan at home, and I'm keen to make my own, but I noticed your kits don't list Parmesan in the hard cheese kit. Does this come with a recipe and ingredients to make this style of cheese? So that's... that's uh, Dean's first question, and the second question is, what is a cheese cave? All right, so um, in answer to your first question, Dean, no, that uh, hard cheese kit doesn't have Parmesan on their list because it doesn't have the ingredients for Parmesan. However, I'm going to talk to my supplier when he comes back off the break, and I'm pretty sure there is an Italian hard cheese kit add-on that you can add on to the hard cheese kit uh, that I already have listed up on the little green cheese under cheese kits. So I will check that out for you and I will reply back individually. However, uh, when I do, I'll advertise it onto the podcast and onto the blog site. So uh, all the other listeners and readers can uh, have a look at that. And if they like it, then uh, yeah, then they can, uh, they can purchase it if they want. Uh, and the second question, a cheese cave. A cheese cave is, well, it can be a number of things. It can be a simple as a cold cupboard uh, that you can you can keep humid uh, that stays around between 10 to 15 degrees Celsius. Or it can be as complex as a big kitchen fridge that has an external thermostat wired up to it that keeps your cheese at the same temperature and even have a humidifier inside it to keep the cheese cave or cheese fridge at the required humidity. Uh, now, myself, I've, I've only got something small. I've got a wine fridge. Uh, and the only problem with a wine fridge, sure, it keeps the temperature between 10 and 15 in winter, no problems at all. But come summer here in Australia, the temperatures, once it gets over 30 degrees, the temperature starts to creep up in the cheese fridge. So I really can't use it. Um, I'm going to have to bite the bullet soon. Find a normal refrigerator and modify that with a external thermostat so i'll be able to do cheese making all year round so in the summer i usually make soft cheeses which just go simply straight into the normal kitchen refrigerator no hassle and don't need maturing and then in the winter i make sorry in the autumn i start making hard cheeses again which can then mature over the winter uh, in the cheese fridge so i hope that helps out thanks very much dean adams for your question now, I've got one last question here. Hang on, I'll just pull it up. And this one is from Cole, and Cole lives in Gunnandar. I think I've read a few questions out from Cole. Now, he's actually got three questions in one email, but I'm not going to read it. It's a massive email of questions. So, Cole, only one question per email. Sorry, mate. Um, so, his question is, and I'll pick the shortest one. It says... Is it important to stick to time frames on the cheese-making instructions? What will be the effect of, say, extending the time? Let's say you were to ripen, uh, let milk ripen for 45 minutes and this ends up being an hour. What would the likely effect be on the cheese you are making? Also, if you leave 
where you have left the rennet period extended out again, what would the effect what effect would this have? Okay, so it's pretty important sticking to the time frames of when you make the cheese. So for instance, when you ripen the milk for 45 minutes, basically what that is doing is building the milk up or letting the culture eat enough lactose, converting that into enough lactic acid to get to the right pH for that type or style of cheese. If you go longer, then the cheese is going to be stronger. If you let it go less, it's going to be not as strong and there's going to be maybe more uh, more activity. It depends on how much salt you add to it to, to uh, lessen the activity of the culture. So th- that is the effect of, of letting it ripen longer. The effect of leaving the rennet uh, go longer, if you leave it less time, then you may not get a clean break. If you leave it longer, then the cheese is going to be, the curd is going to be firmer, quite possibly. Sometimes to the stage where the cheese does become crumbly instead of being, say for instance, if I made a Colby cheese and I left it longer than the recommended time on the recipe for renneting, then quite possibly instead of being a nice creamy cheese like it is, you know, easy to slice, it could then become, if it's over-rennited, with extra rennet or for a longer period of time, then it could become crumbly. And that's not the desired type uh, style for, say, a Colby. So, yeah, please stick to your times. If you're a little bit lax either way, then the cheese is going to be different than what's on the recipe. It's as simple as that. The pH will be higher or lower, and uh, it may be not the creamy sort of cheese you're looking for, maybe then become crumbly. So basically, that's the few things that could happen. So anyway, thanks, Cole, for your question. It it really got me thinking there, and I had to do a little bit of research on that one. That's about all we've got this episode. So I hope you've enjoyed that. So for upcoming workshop dates and recipes and all of my video tutorials, including my cheese making ebook, Keep Calm and Make Cheese, The Beginner's Guide to Making Cheese at Home, they're all available on littlegreencheese.com. So that is my cheese making blog that you can find all that information. We also have all my videos on a YouTube channel and within the ebook. So you can go to YouTube and search for the channel The Greening of Gavin and all of my cheesemaking recipes and tutorials are there as well. So thanks for listening, Curd Nerds, and stay tuned for the next exciting episode of the Little Green Cheese Podcast very, very soon. During this podcast, you heard royalty-free music by Kevin McLeod. I played Malt Shop Bop, the news theme, and Call to the Dairy Cows.